Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They don't actually disclose the actual algorithm and drop chances for those items, unlike normal gambling. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. You didn't sound too sure if that was you. No, I was. I I thought I gave it all my very most assertive name-saying. Fair enough. I think. Okay, hold on. And me, Ian Morris. There we go. That's better. How very uh, Paul Merton. Uh, (laughs) But it's brought to you by you. So thank you to our patrons supporting us every week at patreon.com slash UK tech. Now, if you are a patron, of course, this is your extended cut of this week's show with extra stories, extra stuff outtakes and things um, but if you're not a patron and would like to get our extended cuts our weekly columns and soon more but we'll come to that in a moment then head to patreon.com slash uk tech to find out how you can support us directly and um, that's how we we love it and thank you to ivar husting who is the most recent patron to join us uh, this week in fact he joined us last night yesterday i believe oh, so welcome ivar now, um, a few bits of housekeeping, necessary housekeeping, um, we need to get to before we dive into the news and discussions this week. Um, the first is to apologize for those of you who downloaded the very first version of the regular free edition of the show last week. There was a slight problem, uh, you may have remembered if you're listening to the free version now, um, where Maybe Tom Merritt accidentally spoke over people or didn't appear where he should have, or (laughs) maybe the music was too loud and went on for ages um, during our interview section. Basically, long story short, I normally edit on only the one machine, the big iMac in my studio, but last week, for some reason, I had to edit the regular version on a different machine halfway through. And for reasons I won't bore you with too much, it caused a problem. You experienced the problem. Now, we did fix it after a few hours, and we did have a number of people emailing about it to say, heads up, there's a problem here. Um, but it did mean that those of you who have podcatchers that download things automatically, new shows automatically, you may have got the Duff version. Um, so consider it a special edition, if nothing else. You know, we pride ourselves on sound quality at text message, don't we, mate? You could probably sell that on uh, Facebook, uh, Facebook Marketplace. Like, they sell all the, uh, the original, you know, the first edition runs of £5 notes. So... Apologies for that. Uh, there is a fixed version on the feed if you do want to check that out and listen again. So sorry about that. Now, the the bigger piece of housekeeping that we are coming to is that obviously we're heading into the new year in uh, just over a month. And we've been doing the Patreon now for coming up to a year, which is really great, really exciting. And we thought, what can we do to improve things a little bit better? That thought coincided with uh, an email I had from our publisher, a company called Acast, who said that it may be time for us to possibly not just use their service uh, (laughs) and cost them a lot of money without allowing them to make a bit of money off the back of our popularity. So with that in mind, uh, from probably December 
but it might be January. It kind of depends. The free version of the show, which will stay exactly the same in terms of content, may start to feature some ads. Now, there's a few caveats to this. Number one, they're nothing to do with me or Ian. So don't, they're not endorsements. We're not selling them. There's a sales team that deals with all that stuff. Um, in fact, we'll hear them at the same time you hear them for the first time, to be honest with you. At the end of the day, publishers have their business and they need to make some money to cover the thousands of downloads that we generate every week. So, so that's that. The second part of that caveat is that um, we actually really don't want to make any money off advertising at all. Like, you know, We want the Patreon to be the way that you feel able to support us. So I'm going to give away all the money that we make from the advertising to charity. We haven't decided which charity yet. The charity of my pub. No, I, I, I jest. We do think it's quite important that we... Uh, well, also, it's quite nice to be able to do something for charity without actually, you know, we don't have to spend our own money, which sounds a bit mean, perhaps, but it's it'll be quite nice to sort of take that money and do some good with it. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, we made a promise to um, to patrons that the you know the Patreon side of the show would always stay ad free, and it will. And you know, you'll never hear ads on the Patreon version or on the extended versions or anything like that. They all remain ad free forever. I will shut the show down before I put ads in that version of the show. I will also shut the show down before doing any kind of. Um, endorsements or uh, you know reads that me and Ian would do for a sponsor. Nah. You'll never have been that. offered. We have been offered and and it's good money but we've we've always turned it down and we always will turn it down. I will close the show before that happens. Um but at the end of the day, you know, business is business. Uh publisher needs to make some money. We need to um we want to stay on the platform because we get good benefits from that. So we're saying, okay, fine. We'll do that. We want nothing to do with it. We'll give the money to charity, but it allows us to continue doing the show in exactly the same format. So um, with that in mind, we're also going to be doing a few new things with the Patreon uh, the Patreon side of things from the new year. And we're going to be doing some experiments with it through December. But essentially, we're going to start doing uh, allowing people to listen to the show live. Um, and we're going to start and we're going to change the tiers slightly so that the the people on the $2 tier we'll start getting access to the midweek stuff that we do, uh, which which are primarily the weekly columns that, that we write on the Patreon. They will start getting those, and we're going to drop the um, the the one of the big perks for the $10 tier, which is the raw, the unedited version of the show, which a lot of people enjoy because, uh, you know, you hear all of our thought processes between all the cuts <laughs> and things, and the pre and post show and stuff. Um that will be made available down now to the $5 tier. It's currently a, a you know, perk for the top tier. But we're going to be offering the, the, the free, the, the live uh, option to, uh, to people on the $2 tier as well. So essentially on the $2 tier, you're getting longer show, ad-free, listen live and chat with us while we do the show. But all of this is going to be in a, in a post we're going to be putting on the blog at techpodcast.uk and on the Patreon thing that will list everything we're doing, how you can start getting access to it, the changes to the tiers. We're not taking anything away from anyone. So, you know, we're not taking anything out of the regular free show that stays exactly as it is. Uh, we're not taking anything away from $2 or $5. It, things are only getting added in. So um, there's a lot to look forward yeah. to there. It's a great time to start um, joining us on the Patreon if you would if you would like to. And if not, if then you're know ad averse. If you're ad averse, but if you're not ad averse and would and are happy to continue listening on that, then know that you're supporting 
publisher and you're also supporting a charity that we have not yet determined um it'll be yes. something to do with with tech um i'm quite passionate about um sort of stem well, education and, and yeah that and me too and um stuff like that but um we should also say that if you have any suggestions of charities that we could look at then you're more than welcome to send them to us and we'll give them all consideration won't we yeah absolutely Right, Ian, let's move on, shall we? Um, Let's move on to some news, in fact. Drone users in the UK will be required to do safety awareness tests as part of a planned new legislation on their usage, the BBC reported on Sunday. The Beeb said that police will also be given new powers to crack down on illegal use of unmanned aerial vehicles. The proposed bill, it is proposed, so it's not actually law yet, uh, which the BBC said is to be published in spring next year, would ensure that owners of drones weighing more than 250 grams would need to register and, this is the big one, sit a test. Wow. Yeah. Uh, owners would be banned from flying the drones near airports or at heights above 400 feet. Now, some manufacturers like DJI, which is one of the biggest, they are already working on things like virtual barriers. So you can't fly into, you know, uh, military compounds and, and airports. Yeah, and they, well, they already have, have that. Yeah, exactly. And they have height restrictions as well. And the height restrictions is, is largely just to stop them crashing into planes. And we've seen so many stories over the last two or three years of drones either colliding with or or certainly uh, nearly colliding with aeroplanes. Now, I, I, the question I have here is is how this is going to be enforced, because the only way that I could see this being enforceable is if the the drones would be registered. So they have yeah. to be addressed like attached to a registry and then they were able to be taken control of by authorities so they could be retrieved thereby mm. identifying the owner because otherwise how on earth are you meant to find out who owns a drone yeah um and, that, and yeah that's quite right i mean i guess uh you could make it law that the seller of the drone has to um record the serial number and log it against the person it was sold to so they would be able to find out um, but it's I, mean, I can it doesn't feel like a particularly big technical challenge to do any of that stuff. Uh, and I guess it's kind of a good idea. I, it annoys me somewhat in that most people who use drones do so safely and with no problems. Um, I am not a big fan of pointless rules. And I've, I've had drones and I liked flying them. I don't want to have to worry about doing a test or something like that. On the other hand, I can see the advantages of it. I don't know how how good this test is going to be i don't know how useful it's going to be to people who have drones but i guess i can sort of see the need to do something and it's better that we get on with it now than wait five years and then try and introduce it oh it's already we've already waited five years really haven't we um yeah so yeah you know i i i'm broadly not too concerned about this i i don't i don't like rules for the sake of rules but at the same time, some people have done some pretty stupid stuff with drones. And it is always going to be the case that sometimes um, a few spoil it for the many. So, yeah. Well, there's already something out there which is uh, kind of a bit of public safety awareness. Uh, so it's a website called dronesafe.co.uk, sponsored by a lot of people in the aviation industry. And they have six codes or six 
items as part of a, a code called be drone safe and these are what the, the, they suggest a number one always keep your drone in sight makes sense yeah. two i mean that is an important one stay below 200 feet to comply with the drone code uh, that's the same that's the same height as the legislation is currently uh considering using uh, number three every time you fly your drone you must follow the manufacturer's instructions number four keep the right distance from people and property and then it says from people and properties should be 150 feet and from crowds and built-up areas should be 500 feet distance away uh, number five you are responsible for each flight if you endanger people through any mechanism then you're going to you're going to have problems and actually that's one of the reasons it's probably not that you know we could do without specific drone legislation because if you know if you throw a hammer at somebody then you know you're responsible for the damage that it causes that person right and if you fly a drone and you don't know how to control it then again you know, you're 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 responsible for that. But the, I, the difference is, is that people can't generally throw hammers hundreds of feet. You don't need to throw a hammer hundreds of feet. You just throw it one feet. Like it's not. It doesn't matter about the distance. My point is that it's it's going to be a lot easier to see who threw a hammer than it is who flew a drone into a seven four seven. Yeah, and but you know what? I mean, I there are lots of stories about uh, drones having incidents with aircraft. Some of them aren't actually drones at all, and, and some of them are misreported. Uh, I would be very interested to know how many actual drone incidents there are. Um, I know there is a problem with people flying them over airports, um, and I understand that because plane spotters would absolutely love to have aerial footage around the airport. Drones are great, especially if you're into photography and you know video. They're really good, and you just want to make videos. <laughs> That's all people want to do. There's not usually a lot of malice in any of this. It's just that people sometimes get themselves into situations. I'm all for people thinking about their actions, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, number six in the drone code is uh, stay well away from aircraft airports and airfields which is you know should be common sense logic but there we go um, but let us know any thoughts you have on this if you've got a drone and enjoy flying it do you uh, lament or do you welcome the introduction or potential introduction of the new rules and potential law let us know hello at techpodcast.uk Well, Ian, broadband firms will no longer be able to advertise their fast net services based on the speeds that only a few customers can get from May mm. next year, that is, according to the BBC this week. At the moment, ISPs are allowed to advertise the headline speeds that 90% of their customers can't get. So 10% of people able to get the speed that they provide means they can say, this is the speed you could get. It's the whole up to debate. Speeds up yeah. to 50 megabits, up to 100 megabits or whatever. From May, they're not going to be able to do that. They're going to be able to only say what is based, what is available to at least half of customers at peak times. Obviously, at peak times, there's more congestion and speeds can typically be lower than what you get in the early hours of the morning. Yeah, and I think that it's quite obvious to me from this that I think Virgin is going to do quite well out of this um, because most people on Virgin will get them, you know, the speed that Virgin says they'll get. Um, I and I, I think the companies that will do worst out of it are anyone using ADSL or anything like that uh, because obviously it, it's impossible to predict what people will get. It's not. It's a. It's a matter of line length and all sorts of stuff. And um, it's very unpredictable. So it'll be interesting. And uh, measuring it will be a challenge, I suspect. Um, I guess 
the, the ISPs have all the data they need. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see, because um, broadly speaking, all the ADSL and, uh, you know, even the uh, Infinity providers will all get largely the same speeds. It would be interesting to see if there's any difference in each of them to you know to what they're claiming and what, i don't know how what how the rules will mandate they uh detect uh i guess it could be that you could get unlucky if you're or you could get lucky if you're an isp you might have fewer customers on bad connections just i don't know by virtue of say if you were a very regional isp um then you might find that you you know you, your customers would be getting better speeds than the national average and that would make you look good but without actually you know and as soon as people started t- signing up from other places they might find that they're you know then it drags the aggregate score down if you see what i mean does that make sense i do see what you mean it's it's quite possible i mean i think isps are missing a trick these days in in only talking about the download speed because for me a far more compelling advertisement would be upload speed how fast can i send stuff yeah the the connection because you know back in the day that wasn't really an issue we we weren't doing as much uploading as we were downloading but now not only with social media but things like cloud backups and device syncing and so on and so forth you've you you know and uploading 4k video from our phones to Mm, whatever storage provider or to youtube like there's a real benefit in saying we have really fast uploads and the majority of people don't have upload speeds anywhere near the, the download speed i mean my my home connection my fiber optic connection is about almost 400 megabits down but it's only about 20 or 25 or something up you know which is a, a pitiful ratio in my opinion and although it's usable there's certainly a market i would have thought for if not asynchronous i.e the same in both directions yeah. then um then certainly to to have a big a big speed bump like i, I don't know a- why asynchronous that's not a thing is really yet. hard to do uh, you know like in, in, because i think upload is very expensive you know, traditionally, it was very, very difficult to do asynchronous. Um, and that was one of the products that BT did was, um, you know, uh, you could have ADSL. Well, it wasn't ADSL, was it? Because it was uh, it was ISDN? synchronous. Uh, no, oh. it was... Uh, oh, is it SDSL? I can't remember. But basically, you could have two meg up and two meg down. But it was extremely expensive and ultimately not very fast. Um, and that product probably still exists because there will, there will be some people who value having an upload that's the same as a download more than they value the speed. I mean, again, ADSL is an ageing and probably slightly redundant technology now. I don't, you know, it shouldn't really be around for much longer. And this problem will largely go away when they've done that. But although, you know, Infinity is still very subject to it. Um, You know, if you're a long way away from that cabinet, then you're going to have problems. Uh, So it's difficult. I, I have some sympathy for ISPs. Um, and I have some rage with how they conduct their business. But uh, ultimately, you know, it's very hard to sort of stand alone, you know, to, to sort of be something that have a selling point to your product when they're all the same. Uh, so, I, ag- yeah. I agree. I mean, I have sympathy to a point, but I also think where there is demand, there's almost certainly going to have to be supply for something like this. This is mass market as 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 Internet connectivity. And I definitely think there is now demand for faster uploads. You know, if, if people really knew the difference that faster uploads could make to them, there would be there would be. A, a huge market for that, I think. But the ruling yeah. on the advertising, at least, reminded me a lot of when the Advertising Standards uh, Authority or agency, I can never remember which one it is. Is it authority? 
can't remember. Uh, I think it's authority. Yeah. I think it's authority. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the the watchdogs in the in in this country. But you know, back in 20, 2014, I think it it issued a bunch of um, guidance for companies using the word unlimited in their advertising because there were some companies that was advertising as unlimited broadband. Um, but if you went over about one hundred fifty gig in a month, they'd write to you and say yeah can you use less please or we're going to suspend your service it's like well what part of that is unlimited if if it's with limits um and and they had to rule that um that the, you know the the restrictions had to be more transparent and we tend now to only see the word unlimited used where, in conjunction with the word totally unlimited as if to say we don't cap at all we've you know use it as much as you want it's it's a big advertising perk but um but this thing this advertising uh, kind of ruling reminds me a lot of what happened there with with unlimited but let us know any thoughts you have hello at techpodcast.uk Well, Engadget writes up the news this week that the UK's Intellectual Property Office has published official guidance on hardware, such as fully loaded Kodi streaming boxes, which reiterates that streaming copyrighted material via such Android TV streamers is illegal. Here's a sample of what it wrote. These devices are legal when used to watch legitimate free-to-air content. They become illegal once they are adapted to stream illicit content. For example, TV programs, films, and subscription sports channels without paying the appropriate subscriptions. These devices are often purchased online and described as, quote, fully loaded, jailbroken, plug-and-play, or subscription gift. They're describing using these terms, uh, they're described using these terms to show that they have been adapted and are functioning as, as an illicit streaming device now one of the really interesting things i found so i read i read through this um this document that was put out is uh in section three and there are many sections uh which is titled why you should not buy these devices there are three points given for why you should not buy these devices the third of the three points is that using an illegal cody box harms the creative industries i would expect that to be top of the agenda but given higher play than this are the fact that the boxes often like parental controls, leaving children open to viewing smut, and that they might catch fire. That was point two. <laughs> Only after they might explode do uh, do you get to they might harm the creative industries, uh, which they arguably probably do to a certain extent, uh, far more than they blow up. Um, well, Ian, I mean, we, this is a this is a a good way of getting people to be, to pay attention, right? If you t if you're told that something in your house might explode, <laughs> then they've got your attention at that point, haven't they? I wrote about a, when I was doing Gizmodo for a bit, and uh, it was it was the design of the power supply was inherently not safe, um, and could cause the device to be live. Um, it, they're just very badly made Chinese products that are very cheap to manufacture. Um, and as such, haven't passed any of the needed European safety uh, checks. So technically, well, they might say they have. They almost certainly haven't, um, which, again, is a problem in itself. Uh, the import of these boxes is, seems to be almost completely ignored. Um, you know, aside from what they're used for, we shouldn't be able to buy electrical equipment that isn't safe. I'm not saying that there will be no instances where these things have malfunctioned in that way. It's just interesting to me that it was it was placed higher up um, than uh, 
than the the line about protecting the, the creative industries, which which these boxes are largely, let's be honest, sold to circumvent. Co- Cody, the company, um, obviously gets very very shirty about this kind of stuff. Um, if you write about it, they'll get they'll get angry with you if you don't point out that Cody is perfectly legal and capable of you know doing legal things. But for me, I think everyone would be better off having a much more simple existence on Plex, which doesn't have quite the same plug-in ecosystem uh, and is much simpler to use, I I find, anyway. I know you're a big fan of Plex. We've talked about it before. And we've talked about Cody before. And it's just interesting to see, you know, an official UK body come out and specifically name certain devices. You know, that generally means they're worried. You know, let us know your, your thoughts. Like, which of these three... Piece of uh, pieces of advice are more likely to to put you off buying one. Is it that your kids might watch porn on them, that they might explode, or that they might harm the creative industries? Um, and and let us know your thoughts in general on hello at techpodcast uk. I'm worried about all three of those things ultimately. Perhaps not equally, but they you know ha- being careful about what your kids have access to is really important to me. Uh, you know, uh, creative industries obviously very important, and uh, I don't like fire. So I suppose you're really worried about coming home one day and finding that your children have have burnt to death while watching pornography uh, and there's a letter on your doormat from Sky saying, thanks, we're out of business now. <laughs> that's basically, you've summed it up. That's, that's what plagues my worries day to day. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we have talked a lot about loot boxes and gambling in video games and whether or not loot boxes count as gambling. It's something that Belgium, at least their gaming commission there, is looking into uh, whether loot box purchases in video games are gambling or not. And this week, according to Polygon and PC Gamer, the UK's gambling commission has posted a statement clarifying that video game loot boxes do not qualify as gambling under British law currently. Um, and a large part of that is because you can't cash out. You can't buy something, get a great item, and convert that back into real cash, at which point things would get a lot murkier. We wanted to find out a little bit more, and one of the other podcasts that I co-host is Tales of Tamriel, a video games podcast about the Elder Scrolls game series. And the founder of that show and the Dungeon Crawler Network is Agelos. Agelos, welcome to the show. You've been on before, I think, haven't you? Yes, yes, we uh, you had me on before, Nate, back when we were talking about what was the create was now known as the Creators Club and uh, selling um, PC game mods. So that was I was on here a little while ago. So thank you again for bringing me back. Now that's great. So let's let's start at the top here for people who don't play games or don't understand what loot boxes necessarily are. What's the kind of what's the nutshell summary of what loot boxes are? For a lot of people who don't play games, which is kind of weird in this day and age, because with the technology that we have now, such as all the different smartphones, it's very easy to pick up games. And a lot of people don't actually realize that they're even playing, you know, what would be considered a video game. But when you're playing Candy Crush or anything like that, there are in-app purchases, which are called microtransactions, right? So you're buying power-ups and things like that. A lot of people are familiar with that concept. The concept of a loot box, however is it's still a microtransaction, something that you are spending money on, but you don't know what it is you're going to get. You get this 
like they say, a box and you open it up and you look inside and you'll get a random assortment of items. But you don't know what it is you're paying for ahead of time. You may see an entire list of items that could possibly be available, but you don't, you're not paying for that item outright. You're paying for a chance to get an item that you want. And that's what these things are. They're virtual and uh, despite the fact that various people are saying that it's not gambling, it is because you are paying for a chance at an item that you're hoping you're getting. And this is something that's come to head over the last week or so because of Star Wars Battlefront 2 and the the way that the, the microtransactions and loot box system in that game had been implemented. And it was frowned upon a lot at the time and still is, and in fact has been pulled for the time being, because it allowed players to spend a lot of real money on a chance to get a good item and that item would give them a competitive advantage in the game which is a premium triple a title game that would cost 50 60 pounds 50 60 dollars in the us and so it was seen as a way to pay to win mm-hmm. but how widespread is is this problem is this this feels like something we've heard about in the gaming world for quite some time but only now it seems to be crossing over into modern uh, into popular western consensus Correct. This is actually something that, like you said, gamers have been dealing with for quite a while, since probably the very early 2000s, when the idea of microtransactions started to come into the West. It's always been very popular in a lot of the Asian countries, China and Korea specifically, where a lot of their culture revolves around these gaming cafes, where you go in and you're paying like per the minute, essentially, to play. So they don't want to also have subscription fees for their games or paying this huge amount of money right up front because you're already having to pay to sit in the chair. This whole forest fire actually started with the first spark actually came from China. China introduced a new law that actually came into effect as of May 1st, 2017 that would compel all game makers to reveal the odds of the item drops from loot boxes. So here's the thing. Loot boxes, while they give you a list of items that are available and they may tier them in a hierarchy of like, these are common items, these are rare, these are super rare, they don't actually disclose the actual algorithm and drop chances for those items, unlike normal gambling. If you've ever picked up like a lotto ticket, there is a, if you flip to the back, they have the odds of winning because as per gambling regulations they need to disclose what your actual chances of winning are lock boxes because for so long they have not been deemed as gambling did not fall into that so you never know what those items are or how how many or what your odds of actually winning those items are going to be so china is the first one that actually started this this actually spawned a lot of conversations with companies such as ESRB and Peggy, which are the rating systems and regulatory bodies for video games. They're the ones who actually put whether or not, you know, this is a a for everyone game or you need to be over 16 or whatever to buy these games. They rate the games based on the different content that's in them. So when this was brought to them, both Peggy and ESRB, they pretty much said, um, and this is a quote from a spokesperson that emailed into uh, the gaming news site called Kotaku said the ESRB does not consider loot boxes to be gambling. While there's an element of chance in these mechanics, the player is always guaranteed to receive in-game content, even if the player unfortunately receives something that they don't want. We think it is 
uh, a similar principle to collectible card games, something you will open a pack and get a brand new holographic card that you've had your eyes on for a while, but other times you'll end up with a pack of cards you already have. So ESRB and Peggy have pretty much said this is not gambling and they will not actually mark that as gambling. Do you think this is going to go away or is this concept of loot boxes just going to in, I say the word infect with, you know, I'm aware that that has a lot of negative connotations, but I think the loot boxes are quite negative in, in general. Like, is it going to cross over into more games, do you think? Loot boxes have, in my opinion, been a plague on the gaming industry for a while. I know they do make a lot of money, and for the developers who are making that, it's great. But the idea of it being a very consumer-unfriendly practice if you're going to do microtransactions, you should just let them be as they are. Let people purchase what they want. I honestly think if these regulations start passing, such as other countries banning these uh, lockboxes altogether, they're going to start changing the way that they're delivered, especially if they're flagged as gambling and they have to disclose the odds. I think a lot of people are going to start questioning whether or not they're going to buy them in the first place. When you look and see oh, I can get this super powerful character, but its drop chance is a 0.02% chance that I'm going to get it in a lockbox, people are going to stop and think, wow, I didn't know it was that low. And uh, I think it will negatively affect the bottom line. And it also creates this, like I said, this bad taste in, in consumers' mouths. If these regulations start passing, it will start moving people away from lockboxes because you don't want your brand associated with consumer-unfriendly practices. Um, Agelis, thank you so much for joining us today. Where should people listen to more of your opinions on the gaming industry? Sure. Thank you, Nate. Uh, If you're interested in checking out any of our gaming-related podcasts, you can check us out over at DungeonCrawlerNetwork.com. That's going to do it for the news, Ian. Now, we had a follow-up from Ken Long, the gentleman Yay! who wired in his own fibre internet uh, to his to his house using a, a homemade trench. Uh, he sent some details about how he did it after you asked him to send an email yeah. about how he did it. Um, he said, Great to hear your discussion of my email on this week's show. Here are the answers to some of your questions. The installation and connection was moderately straightforward, if tiring. GigaClear supply cable that is terminated with the necessary connections at both ends. That made measuring the length required a little nerve-wracking because I couldn't just pop to Maplin for an extra five meters. Well, you might not be able to pop to Maplin at all if they shut down. They're not in uh, good financial state at the <laughs> moment. Um, I use mapping software, my GPS-equipped Garmin watch, and good old-fashioned pacing to measure the length required. As it turned out, I only overestimated uh, by about three meters, so got a loop tucked away in the garage. My neighbor came up with came up a bit short, so I had to order an additional few meters, which involved digging in a pot and making a further connection. He says they ran fiber lines down a reinforced plastic pipe to give it a bit of protection that was under the earth. Uh, at the house end of things, I ran the cable through some electrical ducting a lot along the wall before using a long drill bit to make the appropriate hole. Um, he says the company gave him a special stick for pushing the cable through the wall, which sounds yeah. quite uh, interesting to me because these cables are, are pretty fragile. You know, you break a bit of fiber and you're, you're basically screwed. Um, he said it was largely a filthy job in not great weather, so it was very much a case of head down and get on with it. He was very relieved when he was finished, he says. Uh, but he also said, I take on board Ian's thoughts uh, that it's a bit pricey for 500 megabits per second. I can't quite remember how much he said it was. 50. It's 50 megabits per second. It, well, 50 it was, quid, yeah. <clears throat> I think it was about the same price as 
we're paying for 300 meg was was my memory of it which is why i, I felt that it was expensive I see. Well, uh, Ken says, however, we are sadly a captive audience. BT don't appear to be coming out here anytime soon, if ever. Virgin and Sky don't have infrastructure in place either. Satellite broadband was an option, but my goodness, that's even more expensive. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. Satellite certainly is, but my mum lives in a hamlet in Derbyshire, and she she started using a service by a company called, I think they're called Derbyshire Broadband or Derbyshire Digital or something, where you put a satellite dish on your house, but it's a microwave dish, and uh, it, yeah. goes, it goes to a hub elsewhere in this little hamlet, which then gets beamed over to a nearby town that connects to their backbone. And she gets about uh, 30, 20, 30 megabits down. She can get up to about 80. And the yeah, speeds I mean, are but, consistent uh, and really good. Microwave is absolutely brilliant. The only problem is that sometimes people put, uh, sometimes trees grow in the way. Sometimes people build things. Um, and also, I believe microwave is extremely sensitive to rain. Well, so far, this has had no problems based on the weather at all. And they have yeah, pretty crap really weather good. in Derbyshire. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, holding up, it's holding up pretty nicely. That's uh, really good. Yeah. So thanks, Ken, for the, for the email. Um, he said, also, before I sign off, I really enjoyed the extended Patreon podcast. I should have signed up ages ago. Well, we're glad to have you with us. Ken, thank you very much for your patronage, and also thank you for sending in uh, some photos. Hopefully, you yeah, mind us really putting uh, a couple of those on the on the blog at techpodcast.uk um, for anybody who really wants in... to have a look at what Ken and his neighbour managed to do to wire in their own fibre. It's uh, really enjoyed this. It was it's really interesting to learn. I had no idea it was even possible, so I, I'm really grateful for him getting in touch with us. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Now, we had an email from uh, Daniel in Norway after our conversation last week about possibly self-service checkouts once again. God, we talk about that too much, don't we, mate? Maybe we do. <laughs> well, it certainly seems that way. Well, we'd said, we'd said we weren't sure why you would need Face ID to sell knives. And then we looked up that actually you have to be 18 plus to purchase knives in, in Britain. Do you want to take this email that uh, Daniel sent yeah. in? Uh, You've got to be 18 plus to purchase knives in Norway as well. Our self-service checkout use fingerprints for age verification. The first time you purchase beer or something, a cashier will come over and either verify your age manually or ask if you want to enroll in the fingerprint. Uh, after or after enroll a fingerprint I should say uh, after your fingerprint's enrolled you can just scan your fingerprint right on the cash machine when purchasing an age verified product you need to be enrolled in each store location individually but you generally do your shopping in one or two stores so it's fine it also sets off a small smash f- f- small flashing light above your machine uh, when you do this it will attract the cashier's attention so they can look over uh, you know to your face and make sure you're not an eight-year-old who's <laughs> chopped off your older brother's finger or something Something silly, uh, much faster than using photo ID and camera app combo. Absolutely, uh, much more sensible, I would say. Yeah, and and really interesting to hear what's happening in Norway in in that in that sense because I had no idea that this this was a, a thing anywhere. Maybe there are some other countries elsewhere that are also using fingerprints uh, to to verify. I actually don't think it would work if you chopped off your older brother's finger because it's not I remember. To. Yeah, I remember asking Apple this once when. Um, when Touch ID came out, and I said, well, what happens if I severed somebody's hand and use that to unlock the phone? And I'm pretty sure that they said that the electrical impulses in yeah. the finger are required to to activate those sorts of sensors. And so severing the hand would also stop the electrical impulses after a very short amount of I, time. I definitely remember that that is, that is the situation. Because, yeah, it's, yeah. I, but I can't remember whether it's that or something to do with 
Con- oh, I don't know, conductivity or something. I, don't, I, I can't, uh, yeah, we should look it up. I'm sure someone will email us or something. I'm pretty sure it's something like that because it, it's a similar reason to why you can't use touchscreen when you're wearing s- certain gloves. Well, or, the, why, the or why it does work if you use a sausage for some reason. <laughs> fingerprint readers, the, there is a conductive ring around the outside edge, isn't there? That's part of the process. Um, so it must be something related to that, I guess. Well, Alan Charles has written in. He says, regarding Virgin, we were talking about um, range extenders and things um, mm. back a couple of weeks ago. I've recently moved my router from the upstairs office to the downstairs dining room as my 2017 usage has gone from being about 90% wired to 90% wireless. My wireless speeds were very poor. He said Virgin supplied a Netgear Powerline Wi-Fi kit, which has improved matters greatly. I've now doubled my Wi-Fi speed and Powerline wire speed um, over an old Powerline. Cheers, Alan Charles. Thank you, Alan. Now, this reminded me that I believe you many years ago used Powerline, Ian. Am I right? I did, yeah. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's extremely variable in quality, depending on what sort of house you're in. If you've got... Um, if you've got an old house, they tend to be an absolute disaster. Um, if you've got a new build, it's usually slightly better. But they are a they are a really good way of getting. Uh, you know, if you've got if you'd like to use Wi-Fi, um, it, they're they're much better than ropey Wi-Fi over long distances. Um, but I, I, honestly, they're not they're not really quick enough for for me these days. Now we're getting up to you know three hundred megabits a second. There's no power line in the world that can do those speeds. I think you. Uh, top out a little bit less than 80 meg i think uh so you know yeah they're good if you just need a bit of internet you know they're not they're not ideal if you're moving huge amounts of data i see interesting if anybody else is using powerline to expand their uh their in-home or in-office uh coverage do let us know if you're if you're using it and what your experiences is, is like they're also is, uh... um if you ask our good friend Rupert Goodwins, uh, they're very, very, very bad if you're a ham radio operator. They put out a lot of uh, RF interference that actually really makes huge problems. Um, it's just not something anyone seems to notice or care about, but it, it, Rupert used to get really annoyed about it because they, they're they electrically a bit of a disaster. Oh, how interesting. Well, if, yeah. if Rupert's listening, then uh, maybe you could write in and give us some more detail on that. Um, who knows? But if you know, hello at techpodcast.uk. Uh, finally, Mark, uh, Ian, do you want to take the last email we've got here from Mark? Yeah, sure. Hi, Nate, and in brackets, and Ian. I don't know if I like this brackets business. <laughs> yeah, on Ian's here every one... week. <laughs> Excuse me. On episode 112, you guys discussed paying by Facebook Messenger and how it seems to be more innovation in the payment space in the US compared to the UK, despite uh, smartphone adoption in the UK being higher. Unfortunately, I think the reason is quite boring. In the US, fees are charged by the existing networks, MasterCard and Visa, are much higher, uh, around 1.6%, he says, uh, than they are in Europe, which is about 0.2% for debit cards and about 0.3% for credit cards. So a startup that can take some of these commissions can earn a lot more in the US than they can in the UK. Makes sense. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I guess, you know, the EU will have capped all that kind of card stuff anyway. So, I mean, it's good because, it, you know, those card charges can be really problematic. And there is a law coming in uh, next year, I think, that prevents retailers from passing those charges on. So I've got a shop near me and if you pay on a card, uh, they charge you like 50p to cover the thing. They won't be allowed to do that. Uh, they'll either, they'll have to either absorb the cost or increase their prices to cover it. Interesting. Actually, that reminded me, I think I read this week that WeChat is is going to 
start being supported in some form in London in Camden Market. Um, okay. Which is uh, which is an interesting an interesting move because we've not seen much WeChat activity in the in the UK largely because it's so confined to the Asia market where it's gigantic yeah. and has a gazillion users. Uh, but I think I think that was this week. Well, if you've got any thoughts on anything we've talked about today or anything we might want to talk about tomorrow, by tomorrow I mean the future in general. I'm not talking about this on Monday. I'll be at work. Um, then you can do hello at techpodcast.uk. Now, normally this is the point in the show where Tom Merritt from Daily Tech News show joins us to talk about what's been happening in the wider world of global tech but i'll tell you what's been happening in the wider world of global tech u.s thanksgiving holidays which i suspect (laughs) is why tom hasn't sent a promo this week because he's just so full of turkey and couldn't quite clamber his way (laughs) to his keyboard to tell us what's been going on on the show so they have been putting out a show this week you should go and check it out dailytechnewsshow.com uh for a, a more global look at the week in tech as you should every week and um i imagine once tom has digested all of his turkey he'll be back next week to give us more specifics on that week's show but happy thanksgiving as well to all of our american listeners um if you've got any more thoughts or questions send them in podcast nope that's the old one hello at <laughs> techpodcast.uk uh and follow us on twitter through the week at at text message pod that's our source for all uk tech news i'd say it's a pretty much these days it's a one-stop shop for uk tech news it's good I, I really like that our twitter feed i think it's quite yeah. good and we do try and reply don't we like i'm i'm, I'm on it all the time because i'm you know I've got, twitter is like heroin to me um so yeah so i do try to reply to people when they say something interesting or uh, they, they attract my attention somehow so do definitely tweet us it's good we fun. do and we, we we post dozens of stories on there throughout the week it's what we pick all the show stories from uh, each each week as well and it's it's definitely a, a becoming kind of a definitive source for for all uk specific tech news um and thank you to our patrons supporting us uh, for as little as one dollar a week um no risk no problems you can try us just for a few weeks if you wanted to and then cancel um and obviously from from january we're going to be starting a, a whole lot of new interesting things you know you can go ad free or you can go ad free now uh live shows and and a, a tweak to the levels the, the patreon levels uh, of support that we offer to uh, to hopefully give you some more value and uh, and incentivize you to to join us over on that sort of uh, sort of a club i think of it these days something of a text message club that's at patreon.com slash uk tech ian i think we will see you uh next uh, yeah next next week next week, next week. sounds good to me we should uh, it's uh, we're almost making this a regular thing Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.